This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm uh, 129. Sermon text this morning is Psalm 129 as we continue a series of studies in the Songs of Ascent. This collection of psalms within the psalms uh, that are known as songs or psalms of ascent, of going up, uh, particularly with the pilgrimages to Jerusalem in view and, and the various experiences that might come to those who make that pilgrimage to Jerusalem, uh, but also simply making pilgrimage uh, in Christ, the Christian life, pilgrimage towards that uh, celestial Jerusalem, toward heaven itself. Today we're looking at Psalm 129, verses 1 through 8. Hear the word of God. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see wonderful things in your word. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Persecution in some form or fashion is a part of the Christian life. It always has been. It always will be. If that's not part of your experience, it may be that you're not enough of a Christian for anybody to notice. Because Jesus was quite plain in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. He doesn't say the world might hate you. He said the world hates you because the world hates Christ. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus didn't say, blessed are you if people revile you and persecute you. He said, blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of things against you falsely on my account. So we can assume that persecution, that a negative reaction from the world toward the Christian is a given. And if it's not part of your experience, in some degree or another, then you really do need to ask why. Maybe you just don't get out enough. 
Or maybe it's true that the world does not see Christ in you enough to react negatively to him. Now, the flip side of that is we're not looking for persecution. We're not going out trying to just be an offense to people to get them to be nasty to us. No, Uh, we're to love the world. We're to love those who are caught in the world, not the world as a system, as John warns us against, but to love those who are under the uh, under the captivity of Satan. We need to recognize that Christians have always suffered persecution and they always will. It is true in the West and in the United States, particularly because our nation has been so influenced by Christianity for so long that that is somewhat minimized. And yet the world is still the world. And there's reason to think that may well be changing as foundational positions in our country on such things as marriage and sexuality, which once were seen, at least officially, from a Christian point of view, have changed, where not only are other points of view acceptable, but the Christian point of view is treated increasingly with scorn. We need to be prepared for that. Well, in this Song of Ascent, Psalm 129, we encounter a psalm that reflects on this experience of persecution, of being afflicted, of suffering, And we need to be prepared, as he points out. We need to be prepared to serve the Lord, to follow the Lord, even when others oppose us. Even when others oppose us. You could even say, especially when others oppose us. Let's let's look at this psalm and see what it has to say about that. Well, basically, as you look at it, you can divide it into two parts. Uh, Each part contains a very simple truth. First part is the Lord protects his people. The Lord protects his people. You see that in verses 1 through 4. We talked about uh, parallelism before, that Hebrew poetry likes to say something and then basically to say, say the same thing, but in different words. And you see that here, not just from one line to the next, but from a couple of verses to the next. Listen to it. Listen to it for that parallelism as I read it. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, he sort of calls everybody to say it together. We all need to acknowledge this together. Greatly have they afflicted me for my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. Okay, affliction, yet they haven't prevailed. Now we go to the next part. The plowers plowed upon my back, and they made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous, he's cut the cords of the wicked. Okay, again, suffering, but protection, but deliverance. First of all, we need to ask, why this enmity? Why this hostility? from the part of the world toward Christ and toward those who belong to Christ. Well, you find the answer as you go back to the earliest part of the Bible there in Genesis. Genesis chapter 3, you'll remember after Adam and Eve sinned against God and God comes and is sorting things out. And he says to the woman in verse 15, Genesis 3.15, what really is... Almost a theme verse for the entire rest of the Bible. There's a sense in which the entire rest of the Bible is unpacking and unfolding everything that's in Genesis 3:15. You'll know the verse. The Lord says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. And you see the whole rest of the Bible playing out what God says there. The development of two lines, the lines of the world, the line of grace. You see it dramatically, even in the next chapter in Genesis 4, 
where Abel and Cain offer sacrifices. Abel's is accepted, Cain's is not. This hatred of Cain toward Abel so much so that he calls him out in the field and murders him. In the rest of the Bible, you're tracing out two strains, two lines of development, the godly and the world, those who belong to the Lord and those who oppose the Lord. And there's hostility there, particularly on the part of the world toward those who belong to the Lord until you come to Christ himself and you see his enemies finally murder him, put him on the cross where Satan seems to have his defeat. And yet it's not a defeat. He's merely bruising Jesus' heel because Jesus is going to rise. And yet in his death, Jesus is crushing Satan's head. A decisive and final victory in what looks like defeat. That's why there's this hostility. That's why there's this, at times, irrational hostility on the part of the world toward God and toward the people of God, toward Christ and toward anyone who hints of the savor of Christ in their life and in their words and their behavior. That's why there's this hostility. And so with that in mind, we come and look at this. A couple of cycles of suffering and deliverance. Greatly they've afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, in other words, let the church, let the people of God recognize the reality of this. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Yet they have not prevailed against me. You know, that's that's true in his experience, but it's true by the promise of God. That God will not let the world swallow up the godly. He will not let the world eradicate the people of God collectively. But speaking here on an individual level, you know, he, what he's saying reflects the truth of what Paul said in this thorn in the flesh, that God's grace is sufficient in his weakness, that God's power is, is seen in Paul's weakness. They, they've afflicted me from my youth, but they have not prevailed. There needs to be certainly a dependence on the grace of God in the Christian. But there also needs to be a divine and sanctified toughness in the Christian. Not softness, not wimpiness, but a toughness to be willing to stand in there when we suffer affliction. So that's one cycle, the suffering. They've afflicted me, yet they've not prevailed. And then three and four essentially say the same thing again, but in a different way. Plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. Now, this is graphic. This isn't just sticks and stones. may break my bones, but words will scar me for life. I'm sorry, words will never hurt me. That's, of course, not true. Words can be devastating far more than physical injuries can be devastating. But he's speaking of physical injury here, of, of taking... You think of it, taking a, an ox or team of oxen and a plow that you would use to run a furrow in the ground, to carve a line down the ground and running it down someone's back. That plow digging in, cutting, ripping, tearing. That's the image. It's horrible. The plowers plowed upon my back. And the people of God literally have suffered that. And worse, because they love Jesus. But then notice verse 4. The Lord is righteous. 
sometimes suffering may challenge that doctrine. Sometimes pain, persecution might throw us for loop in our doctrine that the Lord is righteous. If you've ever read Ely Wiesel's book, Night, an account of his suffering under Hitler's Holocaust, he was Jewish. It made an atheist out of him. Because he took the, took the data and he came to the wrong conclusion. The psalmist comes to the right conclusion. The Lord is righteous. And he sees the bigger picture. He has cut the cords of the wicked. In this case, he delivers. He has cut the cords of the wicked. Whether the cords are the harnesses of the plow or simply the ropes with which they're bound. He recognizes, celebrates, announces the deliverance of the Lord. But what about when the Lord doesn't deliver in his life? Well, again, we need to take the bigger picture and recognize that whether the Lord literally cuts the cords of the wicked in this life or not, he did so at the cross. That he cut those cords of sin and God's judgment on sin that bind us and that hold us so that we have been freed. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. You know, Paul describes in words found in 2 Corinthians 1 something of this, where he says, We don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. I mean, we thought this was it. Time was up in this world. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Notice he didn't say God who delivers. He said we thought we'd receive the sentence of death, and that was to make us rely on God not to to deliver us in this world, but to rely on God who raises the dead. He thought he was facing death at that point, and he trusted in God, not who's going to save him from death, but who raises him up from death. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. Delivered us in this life, may do it again, certainly will deliver us from death, raising us up. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You see, that's got to be our position. Kind of that we read recently of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who said, the Lord will deliver us out of your hand, O king, but even if he does not, We will not serve you, bow down to your gods, but you could also say even if he does not hear, he will raise us up. Because death is not the final word for the Christian. So that's the first truth that he reflects on here, is that the Lord protects his people. And yes, he does deliver in this life. I read recently of Peter, who had uh, been brought out of prison by the angel of the Lord in answer to the prayers of God's people. You know, he showed up in the door at the door, and the servant girl answers the door and just leaves him standing there to run in and out to the prayer meeting. Peter's here, and of course they don't believe her. The Lord can deliver in this life, and he does. But we also recognize that, if not, the Lord is able to raise us up from the dead. Again, you have to take a long-range view of these things. But recognize the protection of the Lord, whether that protection comes here from persecution in this life, which it often does, But if it's the Lord's purpose for you to seal your profession with your blood, you do so knowing the Lord can raise you up and will raise you up. And even at that moment, 
your soul passes into his presence to await that day when he raises up your body, incorruptible, imperishable, like Jesus' resurrection body. So the first simple truth that we find in this psalm is simply that the Lord protects his people, and he does protect us in Christ. But the second truth that he reflects on here in the second part, verses 5 through 8, is that the Lord judges his enemies. The Lord protects his people. But it's also true that the Lord judges his enemies. Now, verses 5 through 8 may be difficult. Not because we so much disagree with the sentiment as we are somewhat surprised to find it in the Bible. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. And then that peculiar image, verses 6 and 7, let them be like grass on the housetops, which withers. I hope you don't have any grass growing on your house. You might. You know, some green over in some corner of the, of the roof where the shingles are beginning to, uh, to grow crops. Um, you know, I've seen people with gutters. You know, you see some, something growing up out of the gutter. Oh, my. Um, of course, in, in that context, the way they constructed their houses, sometimes having grass growing on the roof was a good thing. That was their shingles. That was kind of what kept the house cool and protected it. Very, very eco-friendly. Um, but that's what he's referring to here. Let them be like grass on the house, housetops, which withers before it grows up. Why? Well, in a hot sun, if there's no water, there's nowhere for the roots to go. There's just not much there for it. And so they wither. And there's nobody there to harvest it. It doesn't produce any, any crop that you could harvest. And, uh, the reaper doesn't fill his hand or his binder, his, his sheaves in his arms. There's, there's no fruit. It's ultimately futile is the, is the point here. Nor, verse 8, do those who pass by say the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Why does he wish this on them? You think, well, that's, that's somewhat disturbing that he says this, certainly not very Christian. What do we make of, of passages like this, or even other psalms that are more harsh? Read Psalm 109 in your leisure time this afternoon. I remember reading that psalm in college, and it's just so much jaw-dropping, the kinds of things he wishes upon his enemy. In fact, I, I would remember that psalm. You know, I'd remember Psalm 109, PT 109. Familiar with that movie story of the PT boat, South Pacific, commanded by John Kennedy, John F. Kennedy, future president of the United States. It was hit by a Japanese destroyer. They're in the water. They make their way to Japanese-held island and so forth. What's a PT boat? Well, it's an attack boat. It carries torpedoes. It's designed to attack. Well, Psalm 109 is PT 109 because it's an attack psalm. And you think, what's with that? What about loving our enemies and so forth? Why is this even in the Bible? Should it be there? Well, different people have answered that different ways. Some have said, well, you know, it's, this part's just not inspired. Why would God inspire something like this in his word? Others have said, well, you know, it is inspired. It's part of God's word. But like some parts of scripture, it's not endorsing it. It's just reflecting what was said. Kind of like when Satan says to Eve in Genesis 3, you know, where the Lord said, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And Satan says, you will not surely die. Is that a true statement? Is that an inspired statement? Where he just deliberately contradicts God? Yes. It's inspired in, in the sense that, that that is what the serpent said. 
Does the Bible endorse that point of view? No. You can find any number of statements like that in the Scriptures uh, that the Bible states, but it does not itself endorse. It's inspired. That actually happened. That's recorded by the by the, the Spirit of God that that's recorded in Scripture, but the Bible is not saying this is, this is the proper point of view. Maybe these kinds of things just reflect the honest anger of God's people against those who abuse them. And while the Bible records those thoughts, it doesn't endorse those thoughts. That's what some would say. And some would simply say, well, this is, this is just primitive. It's Old Testament, you know. Judgment, fire and brimstone, all that stuff. You come into the New Testament, it's more enlightened. We're supposed to love our enemies. We're supposed to love their enemies in the Old Testament. In fact, of course, this came well after Leviticus, Leviticus 19, 17 and 18. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You see, when Jesus gave that second great commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, he was quoting Leviticus. He's quoting the Old Testament. That was the Old Testament ethic. It didn't reflect some primitive sub-Christian point of view. Not at all. In fact, that's where Jesus drew that, was from the Old Testament. So what are we to make of passages like verses 5 through 8 or Psalm 109. What are we to, to do with that? Well, we need to recognize, one, yes, the absolute honesty of it. But we also need to recognize that in those places, the scriptures speak of a bigger point of view. That yes, as God's people, we do desire, if not the salvation, then ultimately the destruction of God's enemies. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 102, asks, what do we pray for in the second petition? The answer in the second petition, which is, and we prayed it this morning, thy kingdom come, we pray first that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed and that the kingdom of grace may be advanced, ourselves and others brought into it, kept in it, and that the kingdom of glory may be hastened. You see, what we want is the glory of God. We would love for and prefer that that glory come through the salvation of people, who, by the way, fundamentally are not our enemy. Satan is our enemy. But they are under his power, and sometimes Satan uses people to accomplish horrific things in this world, things that we would just as soon not happen. And so our desire is that they would repent, that they would turn to Christ, that God would be glorified in their salvation, but if not, that God is glorified in their destruction. Because you see, God is glorified by both heaven and hell. He's glorified in the grace and the salvation of heaven. He is glorified in the justice and the righteousness of hell. But either way, whether it is in your salvation or your condemnation, God is glorified. Now, yes, the scriptures tell us, and certainly on a personal level, that we desire the salvation of those around us. We recognize that apart from God's grace, we might be doing the very things and doing the very things to Christians 
that they themselves are doing. Exhibit A, of course, is Saul of Tarsus. Became Paul the Apostle, a former persecutor of the church, now preaching the gospel of Christ, which baffled a lot of people, brought consternation, no doubt, to many. We suffer persecution, yes, but we are not to return it, defend ourselves if we can, protect ourselves if we can. But remember what Paul writes, the persecutor who became persecuted in Romans 12, repay no one evil for evil. Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And what psalms like this and Psalm 109 are doing are praying for that vengeance of the Lord. That for our part, we are to show them the grace of Christ. But at the same time, we pray for God to be glorified, preferably in their salvation. But if not, then in their destruction. And that is not a sub-Christian view. It's simply desiring the glory of God one way or another and desiring for the kingdom to spread and to grow peaceably, certainly, uh, if, if under persecution, if necessary. Uh, personally, returning good for evil. But big picture, praying that God would save them. And if he will not save them, that he will make their opposition come to nothing one way or another so that the kingdom of Christ might grow. That's a, that's a tricky line to walk. There's no doubt about it. Uh, and there's no doubt the clear teaching of Scripture is to show grace toward our enemies, to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, as Jesus said. But ultimately, we want the glory of God through the salvation of people and, if necessary, through the judgment and destruction of the enemies of the Lord. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they've not prevailed against me. They plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. And so as we come away from this psalm, we're comforted to know that the Lord is he's righteous. He is in control and he protects his people. But also to recognize that the prerogative for vengeance, the prerogative for justice lies with the Lord, and that we are called upon to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us. A fine line to walk, but one we must walk. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray for grace and for wisdom in that, because some of us, for some of us, this is a very personal thing. Uh, Lord, whether it's at work or at school or even in our own families, uh, there are those who... Uh, at least hold us in some contempt, perhaps mildly ridicule, but maybe harshly ridicule because of our faith in Christ. Father, we pray for grace to respond with the love and the mercy and the compassion of Christ. We pray you would protect, guard us, keep us. But Father, we also pray for that day, the day of your righteousness, the day of judgment. Uh, Father, we pray for the salvation of our enemies. Lord, we think of those in the world today who mock Christianity, who mock Christ. We pray for their salvation. We pray that they would come to love Christ, that they would come to make his name known. But, Father, ultimately we pray for your glory and our salvation by your grace and in the destruction 
of your enemies and all to the praise of your name. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.